You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Brought to you in stunning 3D vision. And it's episode... So, episode 180... Of the film file. So that means that I have done nearly probably 175, and you've probably done 189. <laughs> I can't be far off. I think there's only I think there's only been <laughs> one episode that you weren't present at all of the numbered episodes. It popped up on yeah. your Facebook feed a couple of weeks ago when it got shared through the link and i was just like do i listen back to this one no because i i know in my heart of hearts it's inherently bad <laughs> uh, but there have been ones where the audio mix was so bad that i had to adr myself over or your audio cut out a few times and i had to cut and paste other audio clips from other episodes to make it sound like you were talking to me which was a work of genius <laughs> i'm st it's still my proudest moment of editing because i remember you re like saying that you'd listen back through it and you don't remember us talking about something that was on there it was like because we didn't <laughs> yes anyway i'm lee ford and i'm andy meekin and thank you for joining us good news for you on the andy front you're back to work Yes, I've made it back this week. I've been in for one day so far, and it was great to be back uh, amongst the team and sorting things out and sorting out orders and et cetera. You know, all the back of that office stuff that people find boring, but I actually find it quite exciting when I've not done it for a few weeks. Uh, it's, it's just great to be back. The only thing that's annoying about being back at work is literally every five minutes having to regale another person with the whole story of your operation. It's great when you first get asked, like, how's it gone? It's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, it all went People fine. Care. But once you get to, like, the 15th member of staff saying, so how did the surgery go? It's like, oh, can you not just talk to each other? <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've shared this information out now. You can all find out from each other now. It, it's, all, it's all old news now. Uh, but, no, it's, it's great to know that they all care. It's great to know that um, they've all been – that I've been missed. It feels that oh, I've been missed. that's good. As soon as I walked in the other day, uh, the day like a couple of days before I was going back, I popped in just to have a catch up. And as I got to the top of the escalator, Scott came bursting out of the office to give me a hug because oh, uh, he saw me coming in on the CCTV and just like, oh, I need to go and see him. It just makes me feel it makes me feel warm and fuzzy. Oh, that's good. Rather than just fuzzy. Rather than just fuzzy. Uh, I didn't do the quiz this week at work, um, but we got someone else in to host. Oh, good. One of the other members of staff stepped up to it, and he was very nervous, apparently, but he did a great job. And I know that one of our listeners out there who listens to the podcast, because she discovered that uh, some of the questions from the quiz come from what we've been talking about on the deep. Oh, I see. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. <laughs> if you want to win the quiz... You just nip over to the light cinema and do and do the quiz. The light cinema in Sheffield, that is, rather than any other one in the country or in Australia or in Utah. But um, he got talking to her and her family uh, after the quiz. And he said that uh, she was grilling him on what his taste in films is so she can work out if he starts submitting questions, what kind of questions to expect. Because <laughs> the last guy who helped us, no one got any of his questions because he was he was one of these people who likes all obscure indie and art house films and every question right. was on like 14 hour Derek Jarman films filmed in the palette of pink. <laughs> you know what I'd like to do? I always I always consider myself as a missed talent for a quiz show. So if you ever need someone to jump in, Andy, or or co-host it, please ask. I'll I'll I'd bear that in mind. That. 
<laughs> rope it in for one week and we'll do, we'll do a duo on the quiz. Yeah, the film file special on the quiz. I did an Alice Cooper one for the band during lockdown and apparently it was really, really, really hard and people are writing in and asking me, I had no idea of that. No idea. <laughs> Very bizarre. Um, you're, you're not feeling 100% no. Bizarre, are you? So last week I was a bit off colour during the show. I was supposed to go away last weekend after we'd recorded the show and I just felt a bit dodge, some kind of chest infection and I've still not shaken it off. Uh, and I'm getting a bit worried now. I've got a gig in a couple of weeks mm. and it, it does worry me that after nearly, nearly coming up to two weeks that uh, I've, I've still not shaken it. I'm trying to get a, trying to get an appointment for the doctors is, oh, we've got nothing now till the beginning of October. Well, that's no good. No, it's crazy. While I'm not feeling very well now, in October, I might be fine. You end up having to go into the walk-in centres. Yeah, I'm going to have to do something because uh, I've got to shake it. Uh, and term starts again this week. Yes. So it's going to be crazy busy. Last week was crazy busy, but this week is really crazy busy. But I've picked some interesting films for uh, my film course which mm. will challenge some innocent students <laughs> what they consider cinema. You're not, you're, not, you're not making them do a thesis on Buckaroo Banzai, are you? You know what I should? But I should. <laughs> that would be good. What does the watermelon mean in Buckaroo Banzai? And leave it at that. <laughs> uh, you could also you could point them in the direction of Sound of Freedom so they can de discuss and debate uh, the monstrosity that has come out around there. Have you seen the lecture that Caviezel delivers over the end credits of that film? No, I haven't. But it's funny. I, I, I saw a review for it which said if this had been just a film on its own without any of the any of the connections that it has, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It would have been a fairly okayish thriller. Uh, well, someone who ended like it was a friend of the show dropped me a message the other day because you know because I work in cinema and it was like the me the le message left by Caviezel over the end credits. What's the legalities of it? Because I'm sure that you'll know some aspects. And I was like, yeah. what are you on about? So I checked on YouTube and it's been uploaded on YouTube. And the reason why it's been uploaded on YouTube is Caviezel himself, in the message, suggests people take the phones out and record it. And that's the aspect of the legalities that he wanted to know. Um, but it's very bizarre. Search it out on YouTube and watch it because it's very, very bizarre. Because it suggests that there was some sort of conspiracy around the film not being released. It was a 20th century Fox property that was tied up in the sale to Disney. Disney didn't want to release it as part of their slate. It needed a different distributor. There was no conspiracy. It was business. Yeah. He also suggests, pretty bluntly, that child trafficking, which the film is focused on, can only be stopped if more people watch this film. Yes, now that's the bit I heard. So basically, the best way to end child slavery is to buy as many tickets for Sound yes. of Freedom as possible. Yeah, he urges people to take out your phones and scan an on-screen QR code and record it to suggest to other people to go and watch the film to stop child slavery and child trafficking um, and to donate money to a website for other people to get tickets to the film to stop child trafficking because only this film can stop yes. this abuse taking place, which you really have to question the ethics of a film that tries to claim that it can stop an evil in the world if more people pay the filmmakers to make a film profitable. I mean, mm. I can see now why Trump loves this film so much that he did private screenings of it because he's got the same kind of ethics that will manipulate a good cause for their own selfish desire for wealth. Caviezel has completely lost the plot over the recent years. I used to have a lot of respect for him as an actor, but he's fallen so much into the QAnon conspiracy trap 
over the last five years. And this whole lecture is, oof. when you watch it, you'll just see exactly what I mean, that he just comes across as an absolute loon. It puts me off. I mean, I was I was averse to watching this film anyway because of all the buzz around it. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a culture war, isn't it? Now there are seen that the filmmakers are basically suggesting, you know, we can stop this if uh, you give us more money. I'm not going to fund or invest any of my time into watching this film. I think it's abhorrent, absolutely abhorrent. Well, if you if you want to know more about Sound of Freedom, uh, there's there's enough online, including why it's done so well mm. at the box office and. Even though screenings have been empty, seats have been sold out for it. Yes. Le- legally, the message that he gave over the end credits, nothing wrong with it. If a filmmaker and distributor says we're fine with things being recorded, then, you know, fact, etc. won't take any action against anyone who records it. Ethically, I have issues with that message. Yes. For the reasons that I just said, I think ethically there's something seriously wrong with it. But that's why it's been a big success because... Uh, yeah. Some of the clips that you find of it online, you get the people who are recording it, like, going, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. And you just think, you idiots. So you probably just paid for another 10 tickets that are never going to get used, but you just give them money in their pocket. That's why the film's been a success, people. Yes. Idiots have fallen into the conspiracy trap because everything around the film has been pitched as a conspiracy. It's... Do you remember when um, Jim Cavazil was considered to play Superman? Yes. Um, he was back... one of the front runners. And back when he was, I was all for it because... yeah. Yeah, he's got the physique, he's got the look, he could have been a great Superman. Uh, I'm just kind of glad that he didn't, because of how much he's fallen off. Because this is just bizarre. It, it, it's a shame to see people so suckered into it, into all the conspiracy threads. You know, be it a big celebrity, or be it just like, we've all got that friend who's fallen into some conspiracy trap, and you're just like, oh, I thought you were better than that. I had one last week on Facebook, didn't I? <laughs> uh, let's move on. Yeah, let's let's move away from Caviezel's self-destruction. <laughs> So let's blatantly ask our audience that we uh, want to know what they said as part of our social challenge. Yeah. So last week we offered up uh, the question. As we're now past the summer season and it's like most of the films of the year have been released, what are currently your top three films this year? And I don't know why we chose three films. I mean, most people go for top fives uh, or top tens. We just went for three. It was a time-saving exercise. (laughs) Just to make it even harder. It actually made it harder. (laughs) Because then I'd narrowed down to about six films. Then I was like, now I've got to lose three out of this. And we've had some, we've had a good range of responses online. And a good mix. There's a few films that come up from multiple people, but generally there's a good spread of different genres. Stephen Young, sculptor, uh, answered via Spotify, as he tends to do these days. Elemental, John Wick 4, and Asteroid City. Okay. Three solid choices. Uh, All three of them are definitely within my top ten this year. Over on Facebook, Lee Leary, Renfield, Bank of Dave, and Knock at the Cabin. Interesting choices, but anyone who knows knows it, he always comes out with interesting choices. I know why he's gone for Renfield. We know that he's a huge Nicolas Cage fan, but it's a great film. It deserves to be in there. Mimumsy, Patricia Meakin. She's not watched many, but Barbie was definitely a favourite, and she enjoyed The Little Mermaid as well. Dave Van Gogh, Man Called Otto, Tetris, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, John Wick 4, and Creed 3. Pick any three of them. So he's had the same struggle that I've got, that you've got down to a certain yeah. number. It's like, I don't want to lose any of these. Uh, great choices. Uh, I only watched Man Called Otto a few weeks ago, and boy, that film was great. I was so glad that I finally got around to watching it. Tetris I had a lot of love for. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, what a great closure for that trilogy. And like I said, John Wick 4, has already been mentioned before, it's one of the ones that is going to be a repeated theme throughout this. Also on Facebook, Helen Blair, 
She's not seen many new releases this year. She used to watch a new film at least once a week. Yeah, me too. If I just watched one, it was a bad week. Yeah, but with having like a, a toddler in the house, it's kind of stymied her chances to get out to the cinema as much as she used to. Uh, but she did enjoy Little Mermaid more than she thought she would. The animation's her favourite Disney film from growing up, and so she went in worried that they were going to ruin it, but they didn't. And also enjoyed Barbie. Great cast and had her laughing and crying. Owen Cooper, Barbie, Oppenheimer, and John Wick Chapter 4. Three great choices. I, I say that, I've not seen Oppenheimer yet, but I'm assuming it's great because everyone who's been talking to me about <laughs> it has said it's amazing and I need to spend three hours watching it. Logan Cooper, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Champions... And then The Flash or Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, can't decide between the both. And well done. I'm really p- pleased that someone's given a shout out to The Flash and Indiana Jones because there's so much negativity online about both of those films. Yeah. But invalid reasons when both of them are great summer blockbuster pleasing films. Nothing more than that. They, they're not supposed to be some high art. They are summer blockbusters and they deliver that perfectly. Lindsay Story, uh, Barbie, Guardians Volume 3. And still the Michael J. Fox doc. And yes, what a great choice. Uh, another film which was released, but she thinks it was the end of last year that she recently saw was After Sun. And it's really stayed with her. And After Sun. Oh, what a film. That's one of those films. I've replied to it to say it's one of those films where the second viewing opens your eyes to a whole different perspective of moments. The emotional themes explored in that film slammed me in the chest. Definitely worth seeing. Over on Mastodon. Aussie at Mastodon World. Going by the US release dates. Close. Bo is Afraid and Return to Soul. And if you go by global release dates, uh, which limits to movies that didn't play anywhere until 2023, 1001, Oppenheimer, and Bo is Afraid. Good choices. Bo is Afraid's getting some shouts in. Salty Red Popcorn doesn't want to narrow it down to the obvious, which would be Spider-Verse and Barbenheimer. But I have to say that I've been really impressed by most of my cinema viewings this year, from Evil Dead Rise to Rye Lane, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 to Scream 6, and even Indiana Jones kept me happy enough. And elsewhere, Nimona was a real treat. Great list of films. Great list. On the uh, the Twitter sphere, because we're still calling it Twitter, because I've seen, I don't know if you've seen this, whenever anyone's referring to X, they always have to put in brackets, previously known as Twitter. Yes. So it's now longer <laughs> to stay than saying Twitter. <laughs> Ridiculous. Over on Twitter, Stevie Dan 1969 gave us John Wick 4, Oppenheimer, and Dungeons and Dragons. Well done. Another shout out for something which was just so Yeah, we, we had a... Good time with Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, it's it's landed on home streaming now, and I'm just waiting for the opportunity. I think it'll to take off there. It again. I think it'll find its audience there. Yeah. Dennis Obi film. So far, it's been Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Uh, just the one film mentioned in there. And last film, see- last film scene posted an image of their current letterbox top 20 for this year. So we'll just take the top three off this. Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3, Spider-Verse, and Quantumania. Nice to see Quantumania make someone's list. Yeah, we one. enjoyed it. We had a good it's time with just that. Fun. Just bubbling under that, Oppenheimer, Renfield, uh, Strays has made it in there, and TMNT. Harvey Morton, Guardians Volume 3. Guardians is getting a lot of love. The cinema experience, the ads helped keep it at number one. In second place, Oppenheimer with Mission Impossible in third place, with honourable mentions for The Fablemans and Empire of Light. Imran gave us Mission Impossible 7, Evil Dead Rise, Indiana Jones, Scream 6, Pearl, and Oppenheimer. And Joe Stevenson just echoes the Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer by a country mile. Oppenheimer, like I said, I've not seen it, but it seems that everyone loves it. Yeah. On Twitter, you suggested Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. 
Yeah, which I loved. I really loved Mission Impossible. Uh, and I can't wait for part two. Uh, Barbie, and then you're tied between Guardians 3 and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Yep, I'll stand by that. I, I Too close to call. Um, I changed my favourites on Letterboxd to help me work out what my listings were. And I, I went through like all my ratings for this year and then reconsidered what had rated things. And I narrowed it down. And three of these have been mentioned already. I mean, Barbie is my film of the year. There's no ifs or buts about it. Barbie was an absolute joy and a sharp, smart film. And boy, it's top of my recommendations for 2023. Asteroid City uh, makes my top three. And then, and it was close, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick out Bo is Afraid as being my third one in that mix. Just bubbling under is the recently released Theatre Camp because I know that that's a film that when I go back to revisit it, I'm going to love it even more than I did the first time round. This is going to be one of those mock documentaries that I watch on a regular basis. But Bo is Afraid blew me away. Based on what you said, I am looking forward to Theatre Camp. It just has a feel of a Christopher Guest film, but it's not a Christopher Guest film. So where does that leave us for this week's challenge? Now, as we talked about, Oppenheimer is the critic's choice. Everyone seems to love Oppenheimer. Everyone loves Barbie. Everyone loves The Godfather. But... Are there critics' choices that you just don't get? Why all the love for Apocalypse Now? Why all the love for Star Wars? Critics liked it. But is there a film that you think the critics got it wrong? Despite all the praise, Oscar noms, the works, is there that one movie that you just don't get, but the critics loved it? Let us know here on our social challenge. And Andy, where can we be found? You can find us. On all social media platforms, just search for Film File UK. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, we're on Mastodon, we're on, we're on everywhere. Um, or you can email us directly, podcast at filmfile.uk, and tell us your answer through there. Or if you're listening on Spotify, the question of the week will be popping up on Spotify in the show description. Answer it via that. I didn't even know that you were going to ask that question for this week's. Uh, no, you didn't. Yet before the show, I was actually thinking films that get a lot of praise that you don't quite get. And I already had one, at, like, ready. Oh, really? Wow. That's, that's you and I working together now for so long. And that's purely because of all the stuff that's come out from the Venice Film Festival with um, Yorgos Lanthimos's latest film, uh, Poor Things. And I can't be less interested because I despise everything that he's done so far, especially The Favourite, which I thought was a steaming pile of rubbish. <laughs> See? <laughs> and, and that's my example that I just don't get the love that that film has. All that I can see in that film is fisheye lens and ridiculous scenes. <laughs> so there you go. That's how, how we've now become one sort of uni mind. Yeah, we're, we're on the same wavelength completely, even before yeah. we started talking today. Um, I have got a few more, but I'll reveal them next week on the show. I've got a few that have always been just under the surface of like when people are talking about them. I just back away from the conversation because I do tend to upset people whenever I speak my mind on these films. <laughs> So uh, get ready next week to be ranting and telling me how wrong I am via email. <laughs> so that's for next week. But what have we for you this week? Of course, we have some reviews. We have reviews of Babylon 5, The Road Home, the animated movie that is available to purchase at this point in time. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Yes, Andy's playing catch up and boy, what a catch up. And Accident Man, Hitman's Holiday, which landed on Sky and don't worry, it doesn't say a Sky original. And we'll both be talking about our thoughts on Ahsoka. We've got a deep dive into the 1999 film Go. We'll give you the box office, we'll give you the news, we'll give you neat things. But let's start with the box office and the news. 
So the big one this week is the return of Denzel Washington into his franchise, Equalizer with Equalizer 3. Is that gunning its way, Andy, to the number one position? Or is a certain plastic doll still holding out for the number one spot? So over in the US this weekend, the Equalizer 3 went straight to the top of the box office. 34.6 million it took in its three days. Barbie is in second place with 10.2 million. Blue Beetle still holding in to the top five, 7.1 million. Gran Turismo coming in fourth place. It's not going to get a podium finish at this rate. 6.6 million added to his total. And Oppenheimer dropping down to fifth place this week with another 5.7 million added onto its total. In the UK, Equalizer 3, straight to the top of the box office charts, 2.78 million. Barbie in second place, another 1.6 million added to its total. It's on 92 million for the UK release alone. Oppenheimer in third place, another 960,000. Sound of Freedom, new entry in at number four, 760,000. And TMNT, Mutant Mayhem, which I'll be reviewing later in the show, is still holding in, 618,000. The low performance that Blue Beetle's been doing, which even though it's just about been creeping into the top five week on week, it's the lowest opener for DC in quite a long time, has meant that they've rushed it to a streaming premium video on demand release. 19th of September, mark it down in your diaries. It'll be available to rent or purchase online. I say this at a poor box office, but as we discussed in our previous show, it was originally intended for HBO Max streaming service. Yeah. So it was budgeted out of that streaming service's finances. So the just below 100 million that it's made it so far is just pure bonus, really. Yeah, they chucked a lot of money at it. The marketing is where it's not going to recoup any of that back. But is it a failure? Well, I think it's more a failure for the DC brand overall than as a film on its own. I think it's a shame because all the reports that I'm hearing of it, like when you reviewed it last week, you said that it's got a good heart of family drama in there yes. that really works and really makes it something stand out but people aren't giving it a chance because it was marketed so wrong also a film that was written off as a flop elemental uh, yes. and we said when it got released and it did that poor weekend i said word of mouth on this is going to be pretty good because this is a film that people are loving well all although i said was true because it's now past cars it's past 462 million mark and it's heading towards the 500 million mark, which whilst not still not in the upper tier of Pixar box office is still pretty good takings for the film that was flopping on its first weekend. Turns out that all the people who said it's flopped because go woke, go broke, haven't really got a clue. No, it found its audience. And, and that's been the interesting thing over this year. Cinema Days happened last weekend in the UK and in the previous uh, weekend happened for the US. Yeah. So uh, and we were talking about this before we came on. People are finding films that they want to go and see that because they've seen Barbie and they've seen Oppenheimer. So they're going to go, well, we never got to see Mission yeah. Impossible. We never got to see Elementals. So let, let's pop in. And even though they've, they've slugged it out, while they've not made the money that was expected, they now can't be quite written off as, as, uh, as box office failures. But if you judge it in the old style, which is it had to make that money back at the opening weekend, then mm. I think we've seen a, a significant change in the way that, that w the way we consider a film to be a success. The way that the audiences are consuming movies is changing. And it's not consuming in the way that a few years ago people were saying everyone wants to watch things at home. No, people still want to watch things at the cinema, but people aren't going to race out for that opening weekend. The diehard fans will. Yeah. But your general audience are happy to just wait until it's comfortable for them to go out. So I think this focus on opening weekends 
it needs to stop and it needs to be more about focusing on that second week drop off because if when elemental got to its second week i pointed out that it only dropped off 42 percent on week two which was one of the best drop-offs that there's been this year yeah and that's how we how, that's how we could see that this was going to be a film that was going to generate some footfall over time we're in a completely different environment and maybe next year we'll start to see films get held over a bit longer just to give them that chance to get some bites rather than things which fail in the first week, get instantly pulled. Yeah. Let's move on to it. There's not much update on the strike. No, in fact, it feels like a it feels like a step backwards. Yeah. There's been no movement forwards on either the WGA or the SAG's negotiations. But with the Venice Film Festival going on at the moment, a lot of stars are having the opportunity to speak their mind on the strike because they can't really promote things too much if they're tied yeah. into SAG deals, but they are allowed to talk about the action that's taking place. And one of the most notable is Adam Driver, who's commented. He's down there because Ferrari's got its screening this weekend. That's right. And he said he's very proud to be at Venice, to be a visual representation of a movie that's not part of the AMPTP. He then went on to talk about how the film's indie distributor, Neon, has already met the demands of SAG-AFTRA. And he asks, why aren't the bigger studios? The other objective is obviously to say, why is it that a smaller distribution company like Neon and STX can meet the dream demands of what SAG is asking this is pre-negotiations the dream version of sag's wish list but a big company like netflix and amazon can't every time people from sag go and support a movie that has met the terms of the interim agreement it just makes it more obvious that these people are willing to support the people that they collaborate with and the others are not in order to obtain an interim agreement a film's producers and distributors must operate independently from companies belonging to the amptp and agree to terms proposed by sag aftra in its negotiations and ferrari is one of the ones that qualify for that as does the upcoming priscilla and there's a few other stars who've also stepped onto the carpet to repeat similar basically saying that all the indie filmmakers are happy to pay these demands because they realize it's not a huge out-of-pocket expense sorry a small percentage why are you big money makers out there not actually doing anything interesting you see i i mentioned it last week's show about i think there is a sense now that big industry, and we've seen it with politics in the UK, I don't want to get into politics, <laughs> is, you know, uh, I think people are getting fed up of profit over people. Yep. Um, a Gallup poll, which was released this week, also found that an overwhelming majority of Americans support the writers and actors over the studios on the ongoing strikes. Writers are pulling in support figures of 72% compared to the studios with 19% with the Small percentage of others, people just going, nah, I don't care. Actors are 67% to the studio's 24%, which shows that when Bob Iger comes out and says, I don't get why they're being personally nasty towards me. So it's because no one likes you, mate. No one likes <laughs> big money. <laughs> and that's the thing is big money has been coming out showcasing that they are big money and thinking they're yeah. more important for it. On the back end of the strike action, video game actors might also be joining the strike action. Oh, that's news. The union has now indicated that talks over new video game contracts have reached a stalemate, with a strike authorization vote needed as leverage to win wage increases and protections against the rise of AI. It's exactly the same criteria that is affecting everyone else in the industry. The union has a separate contract with major video game makers like Activision and Electronic Arts which was originally due to expire in November the 7th last year, but talks were extended for a year and are due to resume at the end of this month. SAG-AFTRA is asking for an 11% retroactive increase in rates for video game performers, followed by increases of 4% and 4%. The same asks they are asking for the film and TV side of it. The union also wants rest periods and safety protections, onset medics, prohibition against stunts during self-taped auditions, etc., etc. Everything that is in the normal actor's contract is now applying to the voice actors and video game mocap actors 
Um, SAG-AFTRA previously went on strike against the video game companies way back in October 2016. It went on for 11 months. Ballots for the strike, strike authorization vote are due on September the 25th. So we might start to see the video game in, industry impacted. Eventually, eventually people have got to turn around and take notice. Yes. Because we're not going to get any product. We know that voice work on animations at this point in time isn't affected. But That's it's right. only a matter of time before that might start to get impacted as well. Because if video game voice work is getting impacted, we've got to see some movement soon. Okay, so that's the strike. Still nothing much to report that's positive. Let's just hope that we can get this resolved and get back to giving you plenty of news. But what other news do we have for our dear listeners, Andy? John Wick filmmaker Chad Stelsky still hasn't decided what his next project's going to be, obviously, once the strike action's all over. He's got multiple options that he's been developing over the recent years, which include the Ghost of Tsushima film, a Rainbow Six movie, a possible fifth John Wick film, and the one that I've been waiting for and waiting for when it's gone through multiple hands, a reboot of Highlander. Yeah, I saw this because I thought of you as soon as I saw this clip. Well, he's spoken with Happy Sad Confused podcast earlier this week, and he offered updates on all the projects. Rainbow Six, which is a follow-up to the Michael B. Jordan-led Without Remorse movie based on the Tom Clancy novels, seems the least likely for him to jump on. He said that we're in a bit of a conundrum right now with developing that, obviously with the strikes, which suggests it's still only in the early planning stage and there's no script or story ideas at this point in time. Ghost of Tsushima, he dubs as one of his biggest passion projects. The trick is now with him getting people to understand the game's significance and getting that respect on it. In his words, this is one of the most beautiful video games ever made, so it's a challenge to not do less than the guys over at Sucker Punch, the game developers, have done. That seems one of the most likely, but it seems to be a toss-up between that going into production once the strike actions are finished or Highlander, which apparently is pretty close to being ready to go straight behind the camera. Um, in Stelsky's words, I think we have some very good elements now. The trick is when you have the tagline, there can be only one. You can't just kill everybody the first time. I'll say it for you first. Our story engages a lot of the same characters and stuff like that. But we've also brought in elements of all the TV shows. And we're trying to do a bit of a prequel, a setup to a gathering. So we've got room to grow the property. It's clearly mapped out a road plan for a potential franchise out of the Highlander reboot. And, oh, I've been, I've been waiting for Highlander <laughs> to, to come back to the big screen in some way because that first film is great and everything that followed was a muddled mess of either, okay, that's all right, or, oh dear, what went wrong there? Yeah, no, I agree. There's totally. so much potential within there to tell some really great stories. And it, there's one director that I will trust to be able to do it, and that's Stahelski. And he's still talking about Henry Cavill as well, isn't he, in the lead role? Yes, he's, he's still like to have Henry Cavill in the role, which will be, he's got the physique for it. You can have any physique for it because they're immortals. They don't really need to be big, strong and muscly. But boy, he'll look great in a kilt. And as for the fifth John Wick film, it's possible, but there's no rush. Uh, Keanu and him have talked. Uh, if you talk to Keanu right now and say, would you like to do John Wick 5? He'd be like, F yeah. Um, but then he'd look and go, well, what is it? I have no effing idea. That's the situation that they're at. They both like to do it, but there needs to be a reason. Yes. You don't just want it to just be a cheap, oh, let's just bring it back from some more gunplay. You want it to benefit the story. Andy, uh, did you know that Star Trek Prodigy has now been cancelled? Don't worry if you didn't know, because the cast didn't know, because they were caught completely off guard, that they found out that the show's cancellation around the same time as the viewers. Star Trek Prodigy was aimed at younger viewers and appeared to be successful, but clearly not enough to, to be cancelled. However, there's still some hope for the future where it's been shopped around 
at other networks. Probably the only Star Trek show that I've not checked out yet. No, me neither. It's one that I've intended to check out because I did hear all the good buzz about it. Because when it was pitched as like it's going to be for the younger audience, I was like, well, maybe I'm not that fussed. But then I heard like feedback from the standard Trek community saying it might be aimed at a younger audience, but it's really well written. And I'll catch up on it when it's all uh, when it all appears over on the home of Star Trek now, which is Paramount Plus. Second season of HBO's Last of Us is apparently ready to start shooting as soon as the strike action ends. And we're going to be having that that, those, that phrase when the strike action ends yes. at the end of every news item <laughs> going forward. So let's just take it as default that all of the news that we're going to say is when the strike action ends. Neil Druckerman, the Naughty Dog developer boss, was on location at Universal Orlando Resort promoting Halloween Horror Nights. And he talked about where the state of play is with HBO's Last of Us Season 2. Uh, we've outlined all of Season 2 and we're ready to go as soon as the strike ends. Uh, asked about a third game in the series as well. He said that his comms director over at Naughty Dog will slaughter him if he says anything. But apparently they've mapped out where the break is going to be because we already know that season two and three are going to be... Yeah. Last of Us Part Two is going to be split over two seasons. They know where the break's going to be. They know how they're going to play the timeline structure of it. They know how they're going to keep the surprises. And boy, for those people who've never played the game and never read up on it... Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. This is going to be the same kind of reactions as people who used to watch people watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> because there's going to be a lot of people. I mean, my, my wife and my daughter who watched Last of Us with me, who've never played the games, they're in for a shock. It's an interesting <laughs> point. And the reason I think it was successful is exactly that, that, that people who didn't know it was a game or weren't bothered yeah. that it was a game and were more interested in the storyline were attracted to it. And, and and that's the same with, with my partner. She absolutely fell in love with the show based mm. on the relationship. No idea that it was a game until I mentioned it. Video games these days aren't just video games. They're interactive stories. They're interactive movies. I'd love to see Red Dead Redemption make its way onto a film adaptation because the storyline of those two games is perfect for the big screen. Absolutely perfect. Maybe we will at some point. Who knows? Amazon have won the bidding war, beating out Netflix for the adaptation of Don Winslow's novel, Crime 101, which is the Chris Hemsworth starring film that has been bandied around the past couple of months. Yeah. A 90 million deal has been made with the promise of a theatrical release, and that's probably the kicker. That's probably what made them go for it. Netflix reportedly wanted script revisions, whereas Amazon are more than happy with what's been presented to them. Uh, news of the project first emerged earlier this week with the thriller film package having actors Chris Hemsworth and Pedro Pascal attached with American Animals director Bart Layton. It's based on a 2021 novella by Don Winslow. Follows a middle-aged, recently divorced detective named Lou Lubensnick, investigating a long unsolved series of high-level dual thefts along the US Pacific coast. Sounds interesting, and I do like Hemsworth, and I do like Pascal. Yes. Um, you and I, Andy, we don't always agree. There's been times when we've disagreed. And we've decided that, that both you and I both have an opinion. However, in the big wider world of the internet, and social media, having an opinion can lead you into a lot of trouble. So James Gunn's 10 years, DC Studios co-CEO has got off to somewhat of a bumpy start, shall we say. Some of the filmmakers' decisions has upset DCEU fans. Well, Snyder fans, shall we say. Snyder fans. But a lack of transparency over certain casting decisions, such as Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman, uh, whether her future's still going to be in place, and his questionable praise of The Flash has irked some fans. None more so than uh, an old 
delete now deleted review mm. of Tim Burton's Batman that has uh, now been deleted off his personal Facebook account. Apparently, he didn't like it. He thought Keaton was ridiculous, uh, had a ridiculous Batman voice, uh, one of the most boring films he's seen, and he went to call the entire franchise a travesty, and that he thought Batman Begins also wasn't very good. Uh, my question is, why not? Why not have an, a point of view? Do we care? Do you think that he has to like everything to, to be in charge of the DCU? Uh, apparently not. But according to fans, or shall we say not fans, people who troll the internet, you're not allowed to actually have an opinion at all. Has everyone forgotten that when Batman 1989 came out, quite a lot of critics hated it as well? Yeah. Hey, there's there's a lot to dislike in it. He's allowed his own opinion. And his opinion on Batman Begins, which has been taken out of context because he said he's not said that it's a bad film. He just said he doesn't quite get the love for it. I felt exactly that way when that film came out and I felt I was on my own. And that's probably going to be one of my answers next week on the question of the week, to be honest with you, because I've I've only been back to revisit that film once and I still don't think it's a great film. Dark Knight is great. Dark Knight Rises isn't. Batman Begins. No, I don't get the love for it. It's a shame that we've got such toxic fandom around comic book communities in particular. Yeah. That if you dare to dislike something that everyone praises because you've got your own opinion, boy, you get lambasted. That's why I've not revealed to people that, you know, my review of Batman Begins when it came out wasn't very praising. No, it's half a good film for me. It's half a good film. The The, the last act is atrocious. Oh, it's, it's a mess. And it showcases that Nolan wasn't a an action director at that point in time. Yeah. That was his first foray into action, really. And it falls apart as a result. But everyone's attacking James Gunn. Four comments that he made many years ago for expressing an opinion on things. Grow up, people. I'm sure if we dig into your history, we'll find something that you've criticised that everyone loves. And then we can say that you're stupid as well. Just grow up. Everyone's got their own opinion. Lee thinks that Buckaroo Banzai is a great film. I think I'd never like to see that film put in front of me ever again <laughs> I, I won't. but we accept that <laughs> we accept that and we love to discuss why we don't like things why doesn't james gunn like it probably for the same reasons that i don't like batman begins yeah and he's explained why he doesn't like uh, tim burton's batman he finds it ridiculous you know what the, there are parts of, of tim burton's movie which i don't think work i think it's it's over padded but i disagree about keaton i think keaton is my favorite batman uh, mm. but he's right after batman returns Boy, did it take a wrong turn twice. So it did become yes. a ridiculous uh, a ridiculous franchise that needed to be rebooted. Hey, everyone's got an opinion. Marvel have delayed some of their upcoming shows. They've completely reshuffled its TV release date calendar. Multiple delays and some dropping off the radar almost completely. And the move comes not just because of the writers and actors strike, but also the already mentioned general slowing down of rollout of Disney content. As of now, the second season of Loki remains set for October the 6th. And in addition, the second season of What If has been set for around Christmas. Um, after that, the series Echo was due to debut in November. It's now been pushed to January next year. X-Men 97, which was due later this year, will now debut somewhere early 2024. Agatha, Cover of Chaos, which was originally aiming for a very early 2024 debut, has now been put to the back end of 2024, probably around about Halloween. That'd make sense. And it's also got a name change to Agatha Dark Old Diaries. This is a third name change that that show's had. So it'll probably be known as something completely different by the time it comes out. <laughs> uh, Daredevil Born Again, Ironheart and Wonder Man have been indefinitely delayed and effectively removed from the schedule for now. All three of those shows, it will be the impact from the strikes 
that they don't know when they can actually go into production now. But it's not the only thing that Disney have scrapped, is it? No, it's not. And this looked like it was, uh, it's, it's a finished production, and that is Nemo, not Finding Nemo. Nemo as in Captain Nemo from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, Disney have got a lot of problems with Disney Plus at the moment where they're no longer bringing in new viewers. And this is going to be the same across all of the streamers. You can only reach a certain saturation point. Um, They're very expensive to run. There's a lot of very expensive uh, content on there. We're looking at the Marvel stuff. We're looking at you, Star Wars. Nemo was a series that, uh, as far as I know, was finished. Production was finished. Yep. Uh, Disney Plus have decided that they are going to sell it on to another channel. Um, it was going to be titled Nautilus, and it's predominantly a UK production. It was looking quite fascinating. I was very intrigued with it. I've always loved 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Not scrapped completely. It just needs to find a new home. And don't hold your breath, because this might not find a home soon. Because those of us who've been waiting for the final season of Snowpiercer, which was completed by TNT last year and is in the can, ready to release... But TNT decided that they're no longer going to release it. And that's been looking for a home ever since. Now, with the lack of content that's going to come up as a result of the strikes, maybe someone will pick up these finished projects to be able to give them some content. But given that Netflix still haven't made an offer for Snowpiercer, for example, and that's something that they've got the international distribution of anyway. Yeah, it's been successful for them on Netflix. I think uh, there's a lot of tightening of the belts on the streaming services that we've mentioned in the past year. Yeah, uh, that there's a lot of struggles going on. That these things that have been done might end up on the shelf. To it might be four or five years before we see them. It's a shame. It's a shame when something's got completed and then it's still not getting released. Now, at least in this case, they are trying to find a home for it. Unlike the situation that we had with uh, Batgirl, that it's literally been written off for tax reasons and can never be seen ever again. Uh, we we talked about. Uh, points of view and everyone has uh, a point of view to mark the review aggregators 25th anniversary the controversial rotten tomatoes recently sent out over 10,000 ballots to its certified critics uh, asking them to pick their five favorite films of the past quarter century and andy do you know what came in at the number one position what was it it was mad max fury road as the best movie of the past 25 years. That's a very interesting pick. Yeah. It's a great film, but it's not something that you'd expect the critics to go towards. And I think this is a, you know, all those people who say that the critics are out of touch and, you know, because critics will only praise things that are arty and blah, 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 and they don't like uh, mindless action. Well, Mad Max Fury Road being the top pick is kind of like disproven all of that because it's it's a crowd-pleasing, high-octane film. It holds a 97%... What, what's the term, Andy? Tomato meter. What a stupid word. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> well, it's, an, it's an aggregate of scores. It yeah. basically means that 90, 97% of critics scored it 6 out of 10 or more. So in second place uh, was uh, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. David Lynch's Mulholland Drive came in third. Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight came in fourth, and Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire rounded out the top five. Other films on the list are Spirited Away, The Matrix, Social Network, and Pan's Labyrinth. So, interesting. I think I've seen all of those apart from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Ditto. Maybe we'll get around to watching it one day and talk about it on the show. Who knows? Uh, Netflix have released their release dates for the rest of the year. And there's a huge list of them. Some of them are straight to streaming. Some of them are going to cinemas. I'm just going to pull out a few of them that have stood out, particularly the cinema release ones. El Conde releases September the 15th on streaming and it's next weekend in cinemas. Spy Kids Armageddon releases straight to Netflix on September the 22nd. 
The wonderful story of Henry Sugar, which we spoke about last week, is getting a limited cinema run from September the 20th, and then it opens the following week on Netflix. Reptile opens in cinemas at the end of September and then October the 6th on streaming. Fair Play, cinemas September the 29th. Netflix, October the 13th. They seem to be doing a lot more cinematic releases, Netflix. Yeah what they used to do we kind of talked about this a few years ago uh, and that was something that we we kind of predicted yep that they'd have to start making the move to get that extra money uh, pain hustlers october the 20th in cinemas october the 27th on netflix Nyad, october the 20th on cinemas the week later on netflix the killer october the 27th in cinemas november the 10th two weeks almost november the 10th on netflix uh, best christmas ever opens middle of november on netflix that's going to be the one that will annoy everyone at home when their partner goes oh we're watching <laughs> christmas films early no rustin opens november the 3rd in cinemas and then two weeks later on netflix may december november the 17th in cinemas december the 1st on netflix leave the world behind in cinemas the date's still to be confirmed probably by the end of november because it opens december the 8th on netflix and maestro november the 22nd in cinemas a whole month before it lands on Netflix on December the 20th. Rebel Moon, we've already said, opens on Netflix December the 22nd. No plans for a cinema release, which I think is kind of missing a trick. Yeah. Not because I think that it'll do great or that it'll look great on the big screen. It probably will look great. Zack Snyder makes great looking films. They just don't quite gel. But if it got a release, it would see once and for all how big a fan base Snyder has. And if it does well, then maybe the cultists have a point. However, if it does poorly, it will show them all exactly how little their voices mean. So come on, Netflix, end this argument. Give us a two-week exclusivity in cinemas. Let us see what Zack Snyder's films can do on the big screen. Andy, in an alternate reality, we could have had Alfred Hitchcock as a James Bond director. So according to... Uh, and it's well worth a listen, the podcast James Bond Radio, there is a version of Thunderball which Alfred Hitchcock was uh, interested in. Thunderball, unlike the other James Bond books, was an attempt to uh, write an adventure specifically for the screen by not only Ian Fleming, but collaborators Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham. Of course, that led to all sorts of future issues uh, uh, with Thunderball and the rights to it. That's why we got Never Say Never Again. But Ian Fleming sent a telegram to Hitchcock through a mutual friend asking if he'd be interested in directing Bond's movie debut. So the idea was start with Thunderball, start with Alfred Hitchcock directing it, and that would have had an entirely different run. Who did he have in mind? Well, a couple of people. Cary Grant was top of the list, but also James Stewart. Even though it never happens, James Stewart is now my number one Bond. <laughs> in which Fleming responded to Hitchcock as, it wouldn't be so bad if he loses the accent. So does that open the door now to the Broccolis to think about using name directors? Because we still know that Christopher Nolan would love to take a crack at directing a 007 entry. And you know what? If you're going to start the Bond franchise afresh, Christopher Nolan might be an interesting take. Now he's no longer tied to Warner Brothers. But hey, that's just the world of speculation. It'd be interesting if you get someone like Nolan, because you look at what he did. I mean, I know I know we only recently just uh, criticised how Batman Begins wasn't that great. But, you know, what he did with the Batman franchise, with those three films, he, he had a chance to re redevelop everything that was Batman. And to be given that chance with Bond, now that there's no ties 
to the previous films because it's got to be a complete new reboot. It it could really sow the seeds for something different. Yeah, yeah, it, it could be. I mean, Hitchcock's take would have been interesting. He had a, a his violence would probably be a little bit more grounded. Yep. Uh, his humor isn't particularly Bond like, and he he wasn't into sort of. Uh, how can we put it, salacious cheesecake uh, sex scene. So yeah. it, it would have been a very, very interesting take on, on Bond. A couple of quick bits of news. So Exorcist the Believer has moved a week to October the 6th after it was initially penned in for October the 13th. And the reason for this is Taylor Swift. Yes, Taylor Swift is not only dominating the music scene, but she's also now dominating cinema. Yes, uh, producer Jason Blum confirmed that the Swift live concert film was directly responsible in a tweet saying, look what you made me do. The Exorcist Believer moves to 6th of the 10th, 23. Hashtag Taylor wins. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's Roadhouse remake has been given an R rating by the MPA. So expect a 15 or a 18 in the UK. Violence throughout, pervasive language and some nudity. Sounds like a 15 to me. Yeah. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's long-awaited passion project, Megaropolis, has become the latest film to land an interim agreement from SAG-AFTRA even though it finished filming earlier this year. So that's still going ahead. And The Marvels is reportedly very short. Well, short by comparison. 98 minutes. It's currently rumoured to be clocking in at. Now, it's not confirmed, and that might be without the end credits, which are usually around 12 minutes, including a mid-credit sting and an end credit sting. But that will still make it quite snappy for a comic book movie. And maybe that's what we kind of need. And the Alien TV series that we reported a few weeks back had been shooting has now had to stop shooting because they filmed all the scenes that the SAG actors weren't involved in. So that's now put on hold. They can still do post-production aspects on the bits that they've recorded. It will go back into production once the strike ends. Trailers that have landed this week. The big one for me, Andy, was David Fincher's The Killer, uh, which shows Michael Fassbender as a lethal assassin. Uh, the big one for me was Ferrari. Yeah, Michael Mann's film. Adam Driver. I mean, Adam Driver, who seems to want to do biopics of every famous rich Italian person ever made. What I love about the trailer is that there's not a lot of dialogue in it. There's a lot of cars. The hum of the engines. Oh, I'm telling you, that's all that I needed. Beautiful cars, beautiful engine noise. I'm watching that film. I've got goosebumps. Michael Mann, beautiful. Uh, there was a new Five Nights at Freddy's trailer. Looks tantalising. I still question whether it's five years too late. And there's a new Continental trailer that landed this week, which gives you a bit more background to the oh, story and characters. One. Well worth checking out. That is only a couple of weeks away, and boy, it's going to be an event. And I just want to round off the news with uh, something that made me smile. Oh, that's good news. Uh, so I've said it once, and I'll say it again. Howard Shaw's score for Lord of the Rings is the best movie score of all time, and it tops it the classic FM listeners' poll for the UK's favourite movie score this past week. Howard Shaw was voted number one by over 10,000 people who voted on behalf of the radio station. Uh, John Williams obviously made quite a lot of presence in the top listings, overall becoming the nation's favourite composer. Five entries in the top 20 alone, with things like Schindler's List, Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Harry Potter and Indiana Jones being within the top 20. John Barry, the Bond composer, made the top 10 twice with Out of Africa and Dances with Wolves at number four and number seven. And Ennio Morricone, the Good, the Bad and the Ugly score at number nine and The Mission number 10. Hans Zimmer made the top 20 twice with Gladiator and Interstellar at number five and number 17. And the rest of the top 50 included notable classics like Vangelis's work on Chariots of Fire, Magnificent Seven, Dr. Zhivago from Marie Shaw. But yeah, Howard Shaw topped that list with the best score ever made. And that's it for the news for this week. 
Before we move on, we ask you, and we ask you every week, if you haven't done so, to hit the subscription button for the podcast, the for the film file, your favorite podcast for film geeks by film geeks. Uh, all you have to do, head over to your favorite podcast platform, hit the subscription button, and hey, while you're there, leave a five-star review. The more reviews we get, the great reviews we get helps build up the film file empire if you want to get in touch with us and recommend some films for us to watch or just share your opinion on anything film related or if you've got a film that you've made and you want us to review it you know what to do you can contact us via social media platforms we're on all the main social media platforms search for film file uk drop us a message through there or send us an email podcast at filmfile.uk we're always happy to engage with all of our audience out there uh, we love each and every one of you and we love to talk films Still much more to come. We've got reviews, but before that, we've got this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. We deep dive into 1999's Go! So what are you up to tonight? We're going to this party tonight, this warehouse thing. Some sort of rave thing. Is this going to be cool? Yeah, I guess. Does the British guy still work here? He went to Vegas for the weekend. The British guy usually hooks us up. Let me see what I can do. Give me a number. I can't believe you're selling allergy medicine. Oh, we're out of that. We're down to two of aspirin. I think I feel something. It's really smooth, isn't it? So, go. Came out in 1999, directed by Doug Lyman, who was fresh off his first hit, Swingers. It was written by screenwriter John August, who went on to write such things as Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Big Fish, Corpse Bride, Frank and Weenie, the live adaptation of Aladdin. The Nines. The Nines, yeah, yeah, The Nines. Love that film. Uh, Charlie's Angels. Let's not, let's not sully his name with Charlie's Angels. Oh, I don't Charlie's <laughs> Angels. He was uncredited writer on the first Iron Man film, and he hosts another popular podcast, the screenwriting podcast, Script Notes with Craig Mason, which is utterly, utterly awesome. But this was his first feature. The story, well, it's intertwining plots that involves three sets of characters. Yeah, it's uh, it tells multiple stories. It rides the wave of that post-pulp fiction era when multiple stories over disjointed timeframes interact and intersect with each other. And this one sees... Sarah Polly as Ronna, who's our initial focus for the film, struggling for money, desperate to stay afloat, resulting in her getting embroiled in the world of drug deals. From that, we then meet Scott Wolf and Jay Moore as Adam and Zach, who are actors who have taken a deal to avoid drugs charges and are working undercover with the absolutely brilliant scene-stealing William Fitchner. Timothy Oliphant is the drug dealer who interacts with engaged with Sarah Polly's character, but insists that Katie Holmes' Claire Montgomery stay with him. And all of this happens because the Brit of the group, Desmond Askew as Simon, is going off to Las Vegas, and he's the normal drug dealer, and sets into motion a whole chain of events that impacts seriously and almost fatally on everyone involved. Watching this again, the, the thing that jumped out on me was... was the great cast that mm. I'd forgotten about. So, yes, Sarah Polly, uh, Katie Holmes, who was hot off Dawson's Creek at the time, Timothy Oliphant, who is just 
chilling and incredibly charismatic as the as the as the drug dealer. Uh, Taya Diggs, who looked like he was going to go on to much much bigger things. Jay Moore, the stand up comedian, who uh, I had a uh, an email exchange with Jay Moore a few years back. He had a had, I don't know if he still did, but had a podcast, and we got into an email exchange for. Uh, so I have Jay Moore's email. <laughs> Melissa McCarthy in basically uh, her first role. She was a friend of John August. What a fantastic cast! I mean, you mentioned William Fitchner, who who steals every scene that he's in. Uh, Scott Wolf, yeah, Jane Krakowski, who's partly in one of my neat things this week. Uh, what what an awesome cast! Yeah, it's, I, and most of these were. They were lesser known names or almost completely unknowns at the time that it got made. So the film wasn't getting sold on the back of any particular name being involved. It was going to be sold purely on what it is. And that's probably why it didn't really perform at the box office. That and the fact that there were so many films post Pulp Fiction which had done this kind of shtick to lesser effect that this kind of suffered as a result. But it's it's a great lineup of cast and everyone is just benefiting the parts that they're inhabiting. Sarah Polly is amazing as Ronna. Yeah. She shows that desperation. She's She looks like she's not slept for weeks uh, because she's been constantly taking overtime. Uh, she's got physical uh, physical scenes in which she basically almost gets like killed uh, yes. that she throws herself into. Scott Wolf and Jay Moa as the two actors are hilarious. They are hilariously nervous throughout and it particularly hilarious when you see some aspects of some earlier scenes that seem quite menacing from another point of view later in the film and it adds a whole different perspective. Timothy Oliphant, like you said, is just so cool and menacing and I love the fact that he seems to be frustratingly attracted to Katie Holmes' Claire character. He doesn't want to be attracted to her but he can't help but get caught up in her, her insistence on over-talking I'd put it down to. She forces herself upon his life and he just doesn't want to tell her to get lost. It's great. <laughs> and, and like you say, Melissa McCarthy, it's her very first feature role. It's only a brief cameo for all of about a minute and a half. It's just a great little charming moment. I rewatched this film this week and this is a joy of a rewatch. This is something that I I don't rewatch as much as I'd like to. And every I time that, I rewatch yeah. it, I love it. And it's it's because it's got an energy. It's got a vibe to it of the 90s. It's definitely a 90s film, but it doesn't feel that it's stuck in the 90s. You, you, you took the words right out of my mouth because this came off basically the rave culture uh, yep. that was especially prominent in California and Vegas at that particular time. Uh, and so it it's stylistically about that energetic and drug-fueled part of, of young people's life where people would go out for a weekend which would start on Friday and end on Monday morning uh, with druggy flights of fancy that come with all that and Doug Lyman as director manages to edit and, and keep that energy going and manipulates speed and manipulates time with with his directorial style I know and he was still a fresh director off the back end of, of Swingers. John August originally wrote a portion of the story involving Rona as a short film just titled X, which was inspired by the rock and roll Rouse grocery store on Sunset Boulevard. I've not been, but I would like to. After friends asked about Simon's trip to Vegas and what was going on with Adam and Zach, he wrote two more chapters that account for the very nature of the film. August produced the film as well as wrote it. Uh, and I think now would have suggested that if he'd had more confidence, he would have directed it. But he felt that Doug Lyman would be the perfect fit because Swingers was a no budget mm. success, huge success, and of course, created careers for uh, John Favreau and Vince Vaughn. But as Andy said, what works about this is 
the energy of it 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 works fantastically it is a, a fast-paced it's uh, uh it's it's a fun ride it's got sharp dialogue great visuals and works as with no disrespect uh, and it was compared as a, a junior pulp fiction but it works as that multi-level mm. black comedy uh, that is kind of tarantino inspired but it's it's got so much wit to it great performances across the board sarah polly who we ought to see more of in front of the camera i know she's now a successful director in her own right but it is just a fantastic fantastic ride yes it's a magic carpet ride you could say which uh, ties in nicely to just mentioning the needle drops in this film are yeah. to die for part of the vibe and the energy of the era that it captures that whole nightclub kind of aesthetic is the music that's used and in this you get tracks such as steal my sunshine by len gangster tripping by fat boy slim magic carpet ride remixed by philip steer featuring steppenwolf new by no doubt shooting up in vain by eagle eye cherry this soundtrack album is one of those albums that you, it, it outdoes what tarantino had been doing and this is the thing it's like it got compared I, I, yes it's it's thematically got the same kind of like approach to filmmaking as pulp fiction and tarantino-esque kind of styles but i think that does it disservice and i think at the time that kind of made it suffer because all yeah. the reviews were saying oh it's very much like pulp fiction people were fed up of that kind of approach by that point because it had been overdone Yet this is possibly one of the better films that utilises this kind of like disjointed narrative. I, I would agree entirely. And you know what? That wasn't the first film to use a split narrative. No. Uh, Pulp Fiction. But it, it kind of came out, as you said, around that sort of late 90s Tarantino-influenced uh, cinema. But this stands out because it's not a crime crime movie, even though there's some amount of crimey elements to it. This appeals because it's just a great roller coaster with interesting characters that, that takes you into some areas that you don't see the ending coming. Mm. The only part of this film that even when I rewatched this week, it almost damages the film. And it you can't take it all away because it's kind of essential to the setup and also the resolution. And that's uh, Simon's story in Vegas. I knew you were going to say Simon's story. It kind of breaks it up a bit too much. And it's fun. And it's got energy to it. And it's great to see. The character of Simon seems to be the luckiest unlucky person on the planet. He manages to not get arrested first dealing drugs because he goes to Vegas and puts someone else in the fire line. He manages to get away with everything just by pure luck more than anything else and he's so happy and chipper and he just goes through life without a care despite the fact that everything should be working against him but it kind of breaks part of the film but you can't take it away because the setup at the start is essential for him to go to vegas and the yeah. end moments of the film are essential for him to have come back after causing havoc in vegas i'll tell you something because i, I recognize parts of my life from this movie back in <laughs> 1999 and everybody knew a simon oh yes who <laughs> get away with anything to the point where you'd hate him even though he's your pal you'd hate him because they'd always land on their feet and, and simon does and i and i disliked him immensely as a character but i recognize that that those people are always out there there's always that one who does everything wrong but never gets the comeuppance well thankfully it doesn't break the film because the film overall more than works and it's a film that repeated viewings benefit it because first time that you watch it everything kind of comes together but you don't quite see all the pattern the second time around you see all the threads and how well woven everything actually is and it it does 
stand up well to repeated viewings. I've now watched this about five times over my life, and every time I rewatch it, I spot something else. You mentioned earlier about like some of the cin- cinematic choices, and I love like Manny's drug uh, yes. uh, overdose and how that's portrayed. You've got from like him doing like dance routines with checkout women in the supermarket um, in his head to his like his disorientation within the nightclub that leads into quite a frightening visual flair as he's getting dumped in an alleyway it shows like the positive aspects of drugs at the same time as showing the negative aspects and it doesn't judge either way because it captures that was the times that we were living in guys this was yeah. part of our culture and part of our nature we knew the risks but we were still doing them it's it's never preachy it never says at any point Hey, kids, don't do drugs. Yeah. Hey, kids, don't go clubbing all weekend. Don't do stupid stuff. But it it, it never does it with uh, it never does it with a, a, a moral tone. There's always no. that the element of ambiguity to it because you know what? At the end of the day, as long as you've had a fantastic journey, that's all that matters. As I said, it didn't blow the box office apart. It took 28 million worldwide on a 20 million budget. It was considered a bit of a flop. It was critically praised at the time using the Rotten Tomatoes aggregate meter. Uh, 91%, I believe it's uh, stood at with the positive reviews. Just didn't find its audience until it got the home release. I saw this three times at the cinema when it came out because I watched it and then I took one of my friends to go and watch it and then I took someone else to go to watch it. This was one of those films that I wanted people to explore and discover. And even since it's come out on home release, I'm still finding people today who've never heard of this film. Well, they should. Every time that I encounter someone who's never seen it, I point them in the direction of where to get it because I think everyone should watch this film. It's such a fun film of relative newcomers with no scene stealers, everyone benefiting the story and the energetic fun that's on offer. So if you want to go and watch Go, where can you go to find it, Andy? You can't buy a physical media copy of it at this point in you time. You can't? Oh, you, you I've can got it on pick DVD, up, thankfully. Yeah, you can, you can pick up it, it up secondhand or through the marketplaces, but there's it's not been reissued. And I think this is one that could benefit from a nice little polish up as well. Please... Whoever's got the rights to this at the moment, give us a nice 4K restoration of this and I will purchase multiple copies of it and distribute to my friends. Uh, But at the meantime, you can find it on streaming services uh, for rental or for purchase. Wherever you want to go and do your rentals from, you'll be able to find it. I urge you to go and watch this film and let us know what you think. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for our reviews. Andy, what have you got for our first review for this week? So you should still be able to catch it on cinema releases, uh, probably just at weekend showings at this point in time. But Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem is my catch-up of the week. My son, I train you to become warriors. But you have never faced anything like this. Oh my God! Oh my God! Leo, is Donnie bleeding? It was my life! We have to stop him. I dream about fighting every night. You got a rage problem, oh, right? It's not a problem. Ninja Turtle, hold me Peter. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are back on the big screen with another rebooted entry into the franchise after multiple projects of varying success over the years, from the 1990 live action to the underappreciated 2007 animation to the less talked about the better recent live action entries from producer Michael Bay. That's not to forget the multiple TV shows about the green teens. This time, it's Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg who are behind the scenes as producers and story contributors. Not the first time the pair have been behind adaptations of comic book properties, as their names can be spied on TV shows such as The Preacher, The Boys, and Invincible. This new animated entry seeks to reboot the franchise for a new era, and taps a little more into the comic book stylings of the franchise. 
Techno Cosmic Research Institute, or TCRI for short, scientist Baxter Stockman has been developing a mutagen to mutate animals, but a TCRI executive, Cynthia Ultron, sends a squad to remove him from the project and steal his work for potential nefarious means. In the resultant carnage, one of his creations escapes and a vial of the mutagen smashes into the sewers below. Fifteen years later, a rat and four turtles that came into contact with that ooze have mutated and grown into the heroes we've all come to love over the years, Michelangelo, Donatello, Leonardo and Raphael, alongside their mentor and father figure, Splinter. The group have lived in isolation from the upper world, but as teens, the turtles want to get out of the sewers and grow their personalities. Meanwhile, a series of crime sprees is taking place, with TCRI property being targeted by a gang led by the mysterious Superfly. And it isn't long before trouble breaks out on the streets of New York as mutant mayhem erupts. First things first, the TMNT purist in me, who's been a fan of the comics since the mid-80s, having picked up issues before the much-fondly-remembered animated series, did have to grip my teeth a little at the alterations to the origin of the Turtles, which removes the backstory of Splinter being the pet of Master Hamato Yoshi, and instead is just a standard New York rat that teaches himself and his adoptive youngsters martial arts from watching films and TV shows. However, I let that initial upset slide. After all, I don't like to gatekeep on fan properties, and there are many adaptations through the decades that alter elements in a similar way that serve the new telling in a grand way. With that put to one side, I instead had a chance to simply enjoy the film in front of me. And boy, did I enjoy it. The immediate thing you'll notice when watching this, obviously, is the animated style. With a slick yet sketchy style, many have compared it to the recent Spider-Verse films, which I think is doing a disservice to TMNT. Spider-Verse uses a variety of techniques to great effect, whereas this sticks to one style. It has a lower frame rate, and it looks sometimes grubby and dirty in a positive way, while still using vibrant colours within. Looking at times like it could be ripped straight from a comic book, and at other times almost like stop-motion plasticine, the result is a slick look for the turtles, but an almost grotesque design for the humans around them, with the exception of April O'Neil. Clearly an intentional choice to make us rally behind the normal-looking outcasts. It gives the whole film character and personality. The voice cast are great, with a few known names lending their support, such as Maya Rudolph as Cynthia Ultron, John Cena as Rocksteady alongside Seth Rogen as Bebop, Natasha Dimitru as Wingnut, Rose Byrne as Leatherhead, and the marvellous Ayo Edebiri as April. Each of them imbues their animated counterpart with personality that benefits the flow of the slight yet effective story well. On top of that, we have a soundtrack with a new score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, which is slick enough, without the absolutely perfect needle drops scattered throughout. When I know from De La Soul dropped early in the film, I knew I was in for a musical treat throughout and it didn't let me down. TMNT Mutant Mayhem is a fun, vibrant film for the family, rebooting the characters for a new era, giving an action-packed and brilliantly hilarious origin tale, which then teases in the mid credit scene what we can expect in a second outing, which I certainly hope they bring us. With a film that looks and sounds this good, try to catch it on the big screen if you can. I've heard so much good stuff about this. Now, I'm not a massive uh, Ninja Turtles fan. I wasn't even a, a big fan of, of the comics. Didn't get the craze late 80s of early 90s, so I just I just never got that. So I've never been a huge fan. Um, I did like the TMT movie that came out a few years back. I thought that was pretty good. But I've heard good things about it. I've heard the animation style, as you've described, is is very, very cool. So when it probably lands for home viewing, I'll, I'll get to see this. My second review, we're sticking with animation and we're going to something that this was just a nostalgia trip aplenty. Babylon 5, The Road Home. I was there. I was there. At the dawn, 
of the third age. This is an Interstellar News Network special report. Two years after winning the Shadow War, Captain John Sheridan, president of the Interstellar Alliance, is leaving Babylon 5 for what many expect to be the last time. I don't need an Interstellar Alliance. You're my universe, Dylan. I love you. A friend of mine once said, the future is all around us, waiting in moments of transition to be born in moments of revelation. This is just such a moment. Fire this baby up. Oh, something's wrong. What kind of energy does this facility use? Tachyons. Oh, crap. Where the hell am I? Yes, I'm stuck in time. Moving between timelines, universes, realities. After the end of the Shadow War, but set some time before the events of Sleeping in the Light or The Lost Tales, The Road Home is an animated entry that sees the newly appointed President Sheridan and Delenn head to Mimbar to further develop the new Interstellar Alliance. However, whilst there, they participate in the opening of a new power plant, only to find that it uses tachyon energy, which has an unfortunate effect on John, whose DNA is still impacted by the events of War Without End, and he becomes unstuck in time and space. He leaps to future and past, discovering that he's been phasing into different realities and seeing impacts of choices that have been made and the other paths that could have been taken. However, all of realities are at risk from his jumping, and he must seek out Zathras to get him back to his own timeline and bring balance to reality. This is nothing genuinely new for Babylon 5, and elements of it will feel a tad over-familiar to fans of the show, but in a way that actually benefits it more than cheapens it. Fans of the show, and sci-fi in general, will appreciate the what-if alternate choices approach, and getting a chance to see how the timelines could have played out, to know that despite the losses along the way, the right path was taken, is a nice little hook. Effectively, it gives us a chance to check in with the characters that we've loved over the years of the show, reminding us as fans what it was about the series that compelled us. And it's amusing at times and powerfully emotional at others. The animation style is simple but effective, although it is worth noting that the exterior space shots look absolutely amazing, with a genuinely jaw-dropping opening section of the Babylon 5 station really wowing. The voice cast drop back into their live-action roles wonderfully, and the new voice actors who are subbing in for the sadly departed members of the cast do admirable work in representing the parts, but without being simple imitations. Babylon 5 The Road Home may not feel entirely fresh and new, but it serves well to bring Babylon 5 back for the fans of the show, and it'd be great to see more animated offerings continue the story in future. This made me want to re-watch all the series again as the end credits rolled. So is this the future for Babylon 5 then, until we get the, the reboot? Are there going to be more animated films? Uh, Straczynski has said online, because he, he likes to engage with his audience on social media, particularly Twitter, depending on the success of this, he can see them still doing more animations with this set of characters because the reboots that he's been talking about will be a whole reboot it'll scrap everything that came before it'll be its own separate entity whereas this will be an opportunity to do animations to tell the stories of john sheridan and delenn and jacquard and all those characters that we loved and continue their story that with the tales that because apparently he had loads of stories that he never got a chance to say when the plug was pulled on things like babylon crusade this will be his opportunity to do it it's available to purchase on streaming or on blu-ray or on 4k uhd at this point in time if you are a fan of babylon 5 
thoroughly recommend it. If you've never seen Babylon 5, probably not for you. I was going to say, it's not a jumping off point, is it? No, it needs you to have the knowledge of the history and the characters and the storylines in order to get what's going on in here. But for fans of the franchise, I think I'd be happy to see more animations in this style with this voice cast to tell further stories. And then my final review for this week is Accident Man, Hitman's Holiday, the sequel to the Scott Adkins starring Accident Man from a few years ago. So how did I find myself in this situation, you ask? Came a professional killer. And yeah, it's a dirty job. But I'm happy to get my hands bleeding filthy for the right price. Needed to keep my head down after what happened back in London. So I grabbed my fake passport and hopped on the first flight to anywhere, which turned out to be Malta. There's more people need killing in this corner of the world than I can keep up with. I might be able to help you out. This is our lab where he trials all of his new techniques and where I can have a bash at seeing if they're actually going to work in the real world. Yeah. Go! How'd you find me, Ray? I heard that you've got a nice little earner going on down here. Nothing we got going on down here is going to bother you. You have bothered me. No pain, no gain, eh, mate? Based on the character created by Pat Mills and Tony Skinner, this is a second outing of the darkly comic assassin played by Scott Adkins. Much like with the first film, this landed without fanfare and came as much of a surprise that it even existed. I'd recently been reminded of the first film, having reread the earlier comics in the series. Adkins is back as Mike Fallon, the assassin who makes all his hits look like elaborate accidents. And after the events of the last film, which saw him forced to kill his co-workers, he's lived in exile in Malta, serving as a hitman for hire for neighbouring countries accompanied only by martial artist Wong Su Ling, who he pays to attack him at random times to keep his combat skills sharp. Sounds familiar? Yeah, it's a pure homage to Kato in the Inspector Clouseau films. Nobody said this film was serious. However, when finicky Fred, played by Perry Benson, turns up on the scene, things start to go south for Mike once more, and he soon finds himself the target of multiple people, including Big Ray, played by Ray Stevenson, his mentor from the first film. Cue action, witty dialogue and karaoke in an energetic and fun film that is sure to satisfy fans of the first one. Scott Adkins's energy and on-screen charisma are what make this film work. The story is a messy mix of typical tropes of the action genre, but that's not an issue when the film itself clearly knows what it is and it chooses to play the loving parody approach. And Adkins not only looks great in the well-choreographed fights, but he also has great comic timing to boot. Ray Stevenson, in his last role before he sadly passed away earlier this year, is fantastic as the angry Ray, who's out to get Mike, but who realises that their almost father-son relationship might actually be more important. Sometimes gross, sometimes hilarious, but always on the move. This action-packed 96 minutes is a simple slice of comic fun and well worth anyone's time to check out. Again, something I didn't know existed. I stumbled on the Accident Man film being made because I was a big fan of Accident Man comic book way back when it got released in to as serialised format in Toxic. Pat Mills and Tony Skinner's creation was genius, darkly funny. And it was simply that I was searching online as like for Accident Man because I was trying to remind myself of it and it popped up as a film. I was like, there's a film of it? And loved it. Scott Adkins, great. And I didn't know that they'd made a sequel until it landed on Sky this week. <laughs> it's another one of them. It's just like, it just popped up on Sky. It's like, what? It's fun. I've got a lot of love for Scott Adkins and what he brings to like action films. And he's got a really good sense of humour and this balances it all well. It's nothing spectacular, but everyone's clearly having a good time making it. So those are all the films that Andy's seen, uh, but we did promise that we would be talking this week about the latest in the Star Wars entries to Disney+, and that is Ahsoka. Force resides in all living things. 
Everyone in the Order knew Anakin Skywalker. I'm not here to discuss my past. Ahsoka, new episode streaming Tuesdays. The Force resides in all living things. Even you? I know you can do this, Ahsoka. Anakin spoke highly of you. You have no power. New episodes streaming Tuesdays. So before we start, I'm going to tell you that I've only seen the first episode. But to set the scene, Ahsoka, played by Rosaria Dawson, continues her quest to track down missing force wielder Ezra Bridger, and plus exiled Imperial bad guy Thrawn, played by Mars Mickelson. And I first got introduced to the Ahsoka character in Mandalorian. Now, I know that the character made her debut in the animated series, The Clone Wars, and that's uh, Dave Filoni, who's considered sort of the leader now, really, along with Jon Favreau uh, of the Star Wars Empire. Uh, And from what I remember about that character, she seemed just a kind of perky, throwaway psychic character for Anakin Skywalker. But she became... Uh, one of those characters who became incredibly popular, uh, and so much so that the fans wanted to see her again. So Ahsoka is now played by Rosaria Dawson, uh, appeared in The Mandalorian, and from there, tons of excitement as it was uh, uh, basically revealed that she was now going to get her own series. The thing I liked about The Mandalorian was <laughs> that you could come into into it without any preconceptions about what you knew about Star Wars. You hadn't had to see any of the other series you didn't need to know who everybody else was or what the timeline was you came into it and it felt fresh it felt different and if you wanted to go and check out clone wars you could but it didn't matter and then this kind of thing happened across all of the star wars tv series a little bit some of the problems that non-fans have with with marvel and it's that sense of continuity I don't know who Thrawn is, but they got talking about him in the last series of Mandalorian as being the big bad. But I just felt that that while it looked great, and, and I think Rosaria Dawson is, is incredible uh, as an on-screen presence, I, I didn't really care about the characters because I, I didn't care about what was going off because I didn't know enough about what all those other episodes had gone before it. If you're a fan of Rebels and Clone Wars, then you're going to appreciate this sort of live-action continuity of it. But as someone coming into it fresh, I, I didn't know who I cared for. And then it just became a, a, a thing about a thing with characters trying to find a thing, uh, a star map in another galaxy. And uh, I, it just didn't gel for me. I watched the first two episodes back-to-back when they dropped last week. And I didn't have those same problems. I've never seen Rebels. I've seen a handful of Clone Wars episodes. But I felt that over the two episodes, it did enough backstory references to get me up to speed with who these characters are or who they are at this point in their time that it wasn't important to see what they'd done before. And I've had an arg- arguments with some people online about this who are big like Star Wars Rebels fans. Like I've said, like, you know, I, re- I really enjoyed the first two episodes. Like, I can't wait to see more. I don't feel that I've missed anything by not seeing Rebels. And I had a load of them telling me that I've definitely missed stuff because I've not watched the, the cartoon. It's like, well, I clearly haven't because I don't feel like I've missed anything. It's like, yeah. no, no, you've missed this, you missed that. It's like, yeah, but I clearly haven't because I don't feel that I've missed anything. <laughs> and they, they don't get that sometimes you don't need to know. It'd be like saying, um, 
oh, I watched Star Wars and New Hope. Oh, if you've not watched the prequels, then you'd, you've missed everything. Well, no, we were fine with, with not knowing what the Clone Wars were. We were fine with not knowing where Darth Vader had come from way back then. Sometimes you can just jump onto a story and if it's written well enough, you can catch up quite well. I get you, you've seen the first episode, and I can kind of get that the first episode kind of does feel that it's scrambling a bit. Yeah. But it was by the end of the second episode that I knew that I was in, because that's when it all starts to, it starts to build and it starts to piece things together. And you get Ray Stevenson, sadly departed Ray Stevenson, is great in it. I've got love for it. I love the look of it. I love the design of it. And I think all the cast are giving something something really good rosaria dawson is really really good yeah and i'm gonna just say mary elizabeth winstead she <laughs> steals my heart in everything that she ever pops up in and in this i never thought that a twi'lek would ever make make me feel all giddy but boy she looks great as a hero will i ever go back and watch rebels to catch up on all these things i missed no because i don't feel that i need to because this series looks like it's doing enough to keep my interest um I don't know how they're utilising Thrawn in this new universe, but I know the character of Thrawn from way back in the 90s with uh, Timothy Zahn's Dark Forces Rising series of books, um, his trilogy of books, Heir to the Empire, etc. Introduced the character of Thrawn as one of the last Grand Admirals that was trying to put the Empire back together. So I know enough backstory of that villain character to know why they're trying to find him. You see, I... He turned up in Mandalorian, the last season of Mandalorian, yeah. with this idea that I should be concerned about the return of this character. But I had nothing to judge that on. See, the thing is, I think even when they introduced him in Rebels, it was kind of done on the understanding that people knew him from the books. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, and, I, and I've not. I, I mean, I am a fair-weather Star Wars fan. I, I thought the first couple of seasons of, of Mandalorian was spectacular. I think it, it went adrift further on. Boba Fett a lot of problems yes and or brought it all back to me by i didn't have to know what was going on yeah. across the rest of the universe to understand what this story was about even if i'd not seen rogue one it wouldn't have mattered but i just find that i i, I need to know about this thing for this thing to work and i don't know why this the thrawn character is as as, as important to the resurrection of of the empire as, as he is, because yeah. I, I don't know who he is, and therefore I don't feel threatened by him, or I, I don't feel excited for his return and what that means, because I, I don't know what he did first time round to be scary. Yeah, I can kind of get that. In, in the same way, even in the Timothy Zahn novels, we'd never known Thrawn before, and then he suddenly introduced us. He was this Grand Admiral, but the reason why he was never in the forefront is he's a blue-skinned alien, and as we know, the Empire were mostly fascists. So it, they wrote it into Timothy Zahn wrote it into the stories that it was because of him not being a human that he was kind of sidelined, and that's why right. we'd never encountered him. But he was a great strategist. He he came up with most of the winning strategies for the Empire, but he was never on the forefront because he wasn't the public face of the empire knowing that history from what is now the obsolete universe is the only reason that i know of this character yeah whether he's implemented the same way in this universe i don't know i do agree that they need to they need to flesh him out for the live action versions and yeah why why am i worried about his return i i don't know he's just a guy who they keep talking about yeah and 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 his presence spells trouble but I, I don't know what that trouble is because I, I don't know who he is. And I found that in Mandalorian. Oh, we're going to bring him back. Yeah, okay. Why? Why? <laughs> yeah, why? And why do I need to be worried about him? Why does everybody else need to be worried about him? Because I've never seen any reference to it in the movies. And I don't, 
want to go and watch all the animated seasons and I don't want to read the books. But I thought, as you said, Rosario Dawson was awesome. Uh, uh, the cast were great. It looks great. And of course, it, I'm intrigued to know more, but I'm, I, I feel myself not rushing to get back to it. Yeah. And I know I've got another two episodes to watch, but I'll, I, I'll probably get there by the end. I think the biggest risk that we've got with it, because, you know, the, there's the drawing on stuff from the animated shows that would have fleshed it all out. If they rely on that too much, that could damage it. Well, I think they're also making the mistake with the, the having to explain things in the comic books and not everyone's going to read the comics and you shouldn't have to go digging through all other materials yeah. in order to get the full story. Everything should be able to stand on its own. So it's a very fine line that they're going to tread with this series as to whether it's going to contain enough information to appease your general audience. Yeah. So that's the reviews. Um, that's what you can watch right now. But what can you watch in the upcoming week? So at cinemas this week. Um, I mean, surely this is top of your list. Big Fat Greek Wedding 3? Oh, yeah. I, I'm all for a Big Fat Greek Wedding. <laughs> I didn't know there was uh, there was three, but hey. And The Nun 2 also releases. And also mm. on limited release across the UK is Kick Out the Newton Neurotic Story, which, if you're in the Sheffield area on Tuesday the 12th of September, pop over to the Light Cinema Sheffield where you will get to see the film with an exclusive Q&A with two of the band members hosted by your two favourite film geeks. Yes, hey, me and Lee is. are going to be there speaking with two of the founding members of the Newton Neurotics, the punk band from the 80s who've made a resurgence in recent years because the politics are back to what they were. Streaming, Now TV and Sky, Scream 6 lands on there this week, 80 for Brady also lands and Something in the Dirt. Over on Netflix, if you like your kaiju, then the, t the series season one of Gamara Rebirth lands this week watching some monsters stomp and battle other giant monsters. And on Disney+, Plus, Little Mermaid, the live-action version, lands this coming week. And I Am Groot Season 2. Oh, that was cute. The first season was so cute. Nice little shorts that just made you smile. And Paramount+, Plus, Lower Decks Season 4. Yes, the deal with Amazon has now ended. So Lower, Lower Decks is now part of the Star Trek family on Paramount+. Plus. That's it for this week. Uh, we'll be back again next week with another thrilling episode of the film file but before we go yes it's time for our neat things stuff that we've enjoyed stuff that we've loved stuff that we want to tell you about andy your neat thing for this week is i'm sticking with uh, what i've just mentioned paramount plus it's not for star trek it's for a show that i've mentioned a couple of times but i've not actually brought it as a reviews or a neat thing and that's the new season of quantum leap that i mentioned last week all the episodes of season one have landed on paramount plus uh, for fans of the original Quantum Leap, don't worry. This isn't undoing everything you saw before. It's not a complete remake. It's a legacy sequel. And it sees Raymond Lee play Ben Song, who's the leaper for a project that was seeking to find out what happened to Sam Beckett. The project is spearheaded by Ernie Hudson's magic, who was one of the people Sam had leapt into in the original show. And taking the legacy sequel approach allows the show to not only play on the themes of the standard Quantum Leap with the episode of the week structure, but it can do it without stepping on the toes of it because it can play around what has been done before whilst doing its own thing. It still follows that episode of the week idea, only now we also have a conspiracy thread ongoing underneath the individual storylines, something that the latter seasons of Quantum Leap played with, with the evil Leaper plotline. We get to see that kind of played out a lot better. We also see more of the present day activities with this new show, with the crew of the project trying to bring Ben home and trying to find out what's going on. So we see a lot more behind the scenes than what we saw in the original Quantum Leap, which allows it, again, to feel fresh. Cast are all great. Uh, Raymond Lee is a great central lead as the, the Leaper. 
Caitlin Bassett, as his fiance Addison, brings some real good emotional depth. But it's Mason Alexander Park, who's a genuine highlight in this series, as the computer tech whiz, Ian, who works for the Quantum Leap Project. At the start of the season, you'll just think, ah, sideline character, not bothered. But over the season, I just grew to love Ian as a character more and more. And he became integral to the end results of the final few episodes that he became one of the most important characters within there and played beautifully solid time traveling fun social messages like you'd expect the same way the original did the first season has built up to a great finale roll on season two it's on paramount plus now well worth taking that seven day trial or subscribing for oh i might i might check into that based on what you've said because uh i was a big fan of the original series starred the great scott bakula mm. uh, and it was it was neat because every episode would start with the old boy yeah. as he would <laughs> he would uh, <laughs> leap into somebody and uh, if you don't don't know the premise he would leap into a, a person's life we would see what scott bakula looked like but everybody else would see the person he, he jumped into whether that would be a woman for instance yeah which was always <laughs> one of the, uh, the the funnier episodes great series and um, based on what you've said i am interested and um, based on what you said in a previous neat thing i landed on or should I say, I stepped into Schmigadoon. <laughs> so uh, you and I have both got love for old musicals, and Schmigadoon is on Apple TV and pays tribute and also sends up the idea of the musical. So in season one, on a backpacking trip designed to reinvigorate their relationship, a couple played by Cecily Strong and Keegan Michael Kay uh, discover the magical town that lives in a 1940s musical and they learn basically to find out what it means to, to have true love. So season one is all about those 1940s big show tunes like Brigadoon, like Oklahoma. Uh, and then season two, which I've just finished, steps into another, well, not Schmigadoon, but Chicago, And of course is a massive send up of Chicago, um, Sweet Charity, Hair, A Chorus Line, and does it with so much fun and so much wit and, and fantastic songs, which even though they are sending up the big musicals, also are a loving tribute to those musicals as well. Uh, my other half, absolutely, this is a show, a favourite show ever now, and she absolutely loved it. A, a great cast, other than mentioning Strong and Kay, uh, the fantastic uh, Jane Krakowski, Ariona DeBose, you'll, you'll know from West Side Story, Aaron Tevet, Dove Cameron, our, our very own Alan Cumming. This is a, a great cast with a lot of energy. There's a lot of love for musicals. And if you don't like musicals, you'll get off on the idea that they're being parodied because the characters, the two central characters, know that they're in musicals and know the rules that, that musicals take. Um, fantastic series. I hope there is a season three. And again, some, some great work for Apple TV Plus, as we've said before, they don't have the quantity, but they certainly do have the quality. I love on season two, uh, Titus Burgess as the narrator. Yes. It's so much fun. And it's great the fact that season two feels so different to season one at the same time. It doesn't feel like it's just retreading stuff. It's doing its own thing. And like you say, parodying in a loving way. Yeah, it, it never it never sends them up. It never derides them. It, it's, it's done with love. Um, they're only half an hour each episode, so you can get through a couple of episodes per night as we've been doing. Brilliant. Absolutely loved it. And that, folks, that's us done for this week. Um, Andy, 
Any big plans for this week? Back to work? Back to work. And then I'm on holiday again next week. So, oh. <laughs> it feels like I've not been at work this year. <laughs> I'm, ju- I'm just getting back into a routine. I'm getting back into normality and it's starting to feel normal again. Well, that's good. I mean, it's it's been a, a rough couple of weeks. Uh, I'm glad you're feeling better. You sound better. You sound more like the old you and... Uh, you you look so much better as well. Oh, thanks. I've got my best makeup on just for you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back again next week. But before we go, you know what I like about you? And it's not your face. You're only medium cute. But I think it's you're the first non-fake person I've met. It's kind of nice. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Brought to you. By people. No, I'll just say that. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna gonna say in sense around it. People are going, it's not in sense around. I can hear it. <laughs> it just confuse people. Brought to you in Dublin. I'm not sure how audio becomes vision, but um, we'll leave that yeah. for them to decipher. And it's episode 180. <laughs> I'll find a, I'll find a, the, the 180 from like Bullseye or something. <laughs> yeah. So, episode 180 of the film file. I've got to say that every time that you say 180. (laughs) You know what you should do is just drop the clip in. (laughs) Every time. I like salted Um, caramel chocolate. Uh, I like salted caramel ice cream. My other half doesn't. Salted caramel ice cream is delish. Yeah, there you go. Oh, oh, it's the pinnacle, man. It's the pinnacle. I I was going to think something witty on on the end of that, but uh, no, it just would have sounded more like petulant (laughs) (laughs) you're listening to know about